Do you want to start a thriving real estate career, but don't know where and how to start? Do you want to become a successful realtor or investor, but lack the required knowledge and skills? Gear yourself up with the best and actionable advice here on The Real Estate Rundown. Tune in as Shannon Robnett talks with industry veterans about all kinds of asset classes, market trends, challenges, management techniques, and success stories. Listen to informative discussions with valuable tips that will serve as the foundation for your incredible real estate venture. Now, here's your host, Shannon Robnett. Hey guys, you're going to want to tune in to the next episode of the Real Estate Rundown because I have a really special guest on the show that's going to be talking about how you can leverage your money, how you can protect your assets, how you can do all of this and be your own bank. And you're going to want to figure that out. So you're going to want to tune in when I've got Sari Ibrahim on the podcast and we're going to get to those very detailed things that are going to show you a new way and a new take on infinite banking and how you can make that your money as well as protect your assets. So you guys are gonna to wanna to tune into the Real Estate Rundown. Hey guys, welcome back to the Real Estate Rundown. Today, I've got Sari Ibrahim with me and I'm super excited about what we're gonna learn from him because he helps high net worth individuals, real estate investors and business owners retire and grow their wealth. So Sari, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to be doing what you're doing where you're at in the world. Yeah, yeah, Shannon. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. So I started off with more of an insurance background. I worked at a few companies like Allstate and Blue Cross Blue Shield, more on the insurance side. I worked with a lot of business owners. And I really came across this concept after reading the book, The Bank on Yourself Revolution by Pamela Yellen. And the book talks about the strategy, the bank on yourself strategy. I, I think you've had a couple of guests already on your show, Mark Willis being one of them talking about bank on yourself. So this kind of opened up my eyes to the strategy, mostly on the, from the business owner perspective. And then as we're learning more about that and meeting more people, we, we've learned that it can go hand in hand with real estate. And there's, there's benefits to it. Like you mentioned, you know, asset protection, you know, tax deferred growth, liquidity, other things like that. So that kind of really drew me in. And then I started the, started the company called Financial Asset Protection and Financial Asset Protection. We're a financial services firm and we specialize with the bank on yourself concept specifically for real estate investors and business owners. So glad to be here and glad to share more about Bank on Yourself. It's really great to see somebody that named their business in a very articulate kind of way. It's funny how, I mean, if you think about it, Uber, it's an Uber, right? You don't know what an Uber is, right? I mean, there's a lot of these companies. I mean, Lyft, I understand what a Lyft is, right? But your company is very appropriately named. It's almost like you called the Dave Matthews band to have them help you name it or something, right? So anyway, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But, you know, so when you're talking about the bank on yourself concept and you're talking about how people can create liquidity as well as protection, what are those two things that go hand in hand that's special to your formula? I think that those are common problems for a lot of real estate investors. It's, you know, protecting assets and obviously the taxes are behind it. There's a lot of benefits to being a real tax benefits to being a real estate investor. But I think understanding bank on yourself is more from the standpoint of looking at the problems first and then seeing if we could use the strategy as a solution to those problems. Some common problems, you know, we mentioned asset protection, taxes, also interest too. So if we're thinking about it, Shannon, let's say that, for example, you're in real estate, you're more on the active real estate investing side, you're leveraging loans, bank loans. 
the downside to that is that the interest goes obviously to the lenders. So over time, these lenders are almost like your indirect partners. They're getting from your work that you're doing, they're getting interest from that over the years. So that could be a potential problem, a loss of opportunity cost on your side. Also, it's not always guaranteed that you're going to get funding from banks. So Bank on Yourself, you know, also known as Infinite Banking, it helps address that where you can become your own source of financing while protecting your assets and while growing wealth tax deferred. So as the policy is increasing in value and earning dividends and compound interest, that's done tax deferred. So you're not having to pay taxes on that growth. You know, one of the things that we do in our syndications is we've got the Infinite Banking program involved in our uh, succession plans. And mm-hmm. so each project is buying insurance, mm-hmm. contributing to my personal program, and then having a piece of that insurance for each project so that if there's anything that ever happens, that's all part of our succession plan. But why waste the money, right? Why buy a, a single use policy that's just good for this project? We are putting that toward my product and my policy. So I'm getting the benefit of that, but the project is getting the same amount or more insurance and knowing that it's always in place, right? So Mm -hmm. we use kind of that, it's a little bit of a hybrid, but it protects our investors. Should we have an event that I'm really, I'm going to tell you, sorry, I would be really upset if my life insurance is necessary, right? I mean, because that means like... I'm not here anymore, right? So, so that's not on my top 10. It's not even on my top 100 lists of things to do is to see if my life insurance is any good. But And most people don't think that, but they don't plan to have the ability for that. And then what they normally do is they've got a policy that does nothing more than provide death benefit, mm-hmm. which you don't want to get, right? You're not around to collect. So the bank on yourself policy, I mean, really, what is the underlying policy that we're getting and how are we implementing that concept, right? That people can take advantage of if they're working with someone like yourself. I mean, what are we getting? Are we getting, it's not term, it's, Mm -hmm. is that a VUL policy? Is it a UL policy? Is it, what's the premise of starting that policy? Yeah. Yeah. Great point. So in basic terms, what it is, it's dividend paying whole life insurance. So like you mentioned, we're not doing this just for the life insurance. We're doing this also for the living benefits while we're still alive for the cash benefits. And we're also using it for multiple reasons or multiple functions. So for example, you have a whole life insurance policy, you have life insurance in it, and you have cash value, almost like a savings account component inside of it. That is cash. It's liquid. You could withdraw that money or you could borrow against it. You could leverage it. And then you could pretty much use it as like a weapon or a tool for different areas, such as taxes, asset protection. You could use it, for example, if you're a limited partner, you could borrow against it and then invest in deals as a limited partner. If you're an active investor, you could use that for your deals alongside other sources of funding. So there's many different ways to do it, many different you know creative things that a lot of people do. I think you mentioned you're doing it already within your projects and within your company. So there's a lot of different ways to use it. I think because so clients always ask like, you know, I'm a real estate investor, what should I do? You know, and it starts with your objectives first. Like, what is it that you want to accomplish? Somebody who's a limited partner and that's all they want to do is just be a limited partner in real estate deals is going to be completely different than somebody who's, you know, a general partner or running the deals. It's going to be two different scenarios, you know, different policies, different funding amounts, all that's going to be different. So it starts with identifying your objectives, where you're at right now, where you want to go, what are your goals? And then also your financial self-awareness Like, where are you right now and where do you want to get to? And then we use a policy or sometimes numerous policies to help bridge you to those goals. Life insurance is one of those things that nobody that's alive wants to talk about. Right? <laughs> yeah. Honestly, dead people don't talk. So at least <laughs> not to me. 
So, you know, the reality is most people don't want to deal with it, but when they really realize that it can be an investment tool, that it can be something that gets you benefit other than Mm -hmm. taking care of your loved ones after you're gone, it really can become a tool. But why is it so hard for people to want to talk about this? Is it because they only feel that it's something that will benefit them when they're dead or benefit their heirs at that point? Because it's really no benefit to them. Or is it that it's just an uncomfortable conversation? You're right. So a lot of people don't talk about this. And there's a couple of reasons. Like number one, people don't know about it. People assume that life insurance is just life insurance, you know, hence the title life insurance, you know, that's all it is. It's just kind of like death insurance, where if you pass away, your beneficiaries get money. That's how most people look at it. But as you kind of start digging deeper into the cash value and all the tax benefits and asset protection, I think that people still have like a barrier behind it because of their paradigms, that what they were taught growing up, what they were taught in college, what they were taught working for different companies, for different people that, you know, it's, you know, stocks, you know, you put money in the stock market, you buy real estate actively, you have bonds, you know, you use a bank account for everything. So all these kind of different things that are drilled in people's minds. And some of those are, you know, those are conventional ways that we all apply. But, you know, infinite banking or bank on yourself, it requires a different way of thinking, a different a mindset shift where you're shifting from a consumer mindset or a borrow mindset to a, a bank mindset where you're becoming the banker, literally, where you're becoming the source of your own financing and you're thinking like a bank. You know, you're thinking, how do I take control of my capital? How do I keep it? in my pocket, even when I'm using it, how do I keep it with me? How do I bring it into the future with me? And how do I compound it over time uninterrupted? And how do I protect it, obviously, from unnecessary risks like lawsuits and liens and judgments, other things like that? That's what we're really doing with infinite banking or bank ownership. So we're thinking about how to think like a bank. To kind of articulate this a different way, and mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know that it's the people think about this as a consumer mindset, but they think about it as a debtor's mindset. People that are, I would say, recreational investors, right? They own their home and they think their home is an asset. Mm -hmm. They're debtors yeah, because they look at that and they go, I can't wait to hurry up and pay this off. Instead of being investors and real estate professionals where we look at debt and we go, debt is leverage. Yeah, is a tool in our toolbox, and we're looking to make a percentage on top of that debt. So we look at debt as something that it's not necessarily good or bad. Bad debt is too much of it. Yeah, good debt is the right amount of it that allows you to control a larger asset that allows you to create cash flow that allows you to create other things. And I think when people shift that and go, "Wow, okay, this is another way for me to obtain a leverage position." from myself to myself. And then I can make sure that I get that loan because you'd hate that if you turned yourself down for a loan, right? Out of your life insurance. I mean, that'd be, that'd be tragic, right? You can really leverage that where you are in control of that. And now instead of being a debtor's mentality, you're really looking at it as somebody that has additional tools in your toolbox to get leverage. So you're able to come from a place of, I can go get leverage over here. I can get leverage over here. I can get leverage from the bank. I have different sources of leverage and I can look at to say this another way, an equity stack where Mm -hmm. I've got bank debt, I've got equity from my life insurance and I've got equity for myself. And who's the ultimate guarantor is me personally. And the life insurance protects that. And you pull all that together. That's a mindset shift for sure. That is definitely a mindset shift that a lot of people just don't wrap their head around, right? Absolutely. 100%. You got a spot on. Yeah, exactly. There's a big difference between good debt and bad debt. 
I think, you know, conventional wisdom teaches us that like all debt is bad. You want to eliminate all debt. Like you said, you have a mortgage, you want to pay it down as soon as possible. No, actually an investor mindset would say, Hey, you know what? If I pay off, if I pay off my mortgage, I'm going to tie up all this capital into the property I live in, you know, which is arguably not really an asset, you know, cause you're using it and you know, the other factors, but at the same time, we could leverage that money in there, especially with low interest rates today. We could leverage that capital and, you know, through lines of credit or other forms and use that and deploy that in other places. We could take good debt and then make something out of it, not just completely eliminate all debt. And this is exactly what like bank ownership involves is it involves leveraging debt because Shannon, so many people are like, why is it that I have to borrow money from my life insurance policy? It doesn't make any sense. I'm putting money into a policy and then I have to take out a loan to use my money. And exactly, you do. And you want to take out a loan. And the reason why you want to take out a loan is because a loan, taking out a loan against an asset is the only way that asset can grow uninterrupted. Meaning if you had, for example, $500,000 in cash value in your policy and you borrow $100,000 to use that to be a limited partner or to be an active investor, that $500,000, your original cash value is uninterrupted. You didn't subtract from the principal. You borrowed from a different source, the insurance company. That's a different source. You borrowed from them, leveraging your cash value. So that's definitely a good example of good debt. You're using it to kind of be in two places at the same time. Let's use it to be in three places at the same time. <laughs> Let's say that I have a house and I've got $300,000 in equity in my home yeah. and I want to buy $200,000 in gold. Yeah. Walk me through how I would do that in an infinite banking program where my only source of cash is in my home, yeah. in my equity, what would I do to buy that $150,000 in gold? Yeah. So if you had 300,000 equity, let's just say you took out 200,000, maybe a little bit more, maybe like 220 you took out in cash. Right. You put 220 into a whole life policy, then you could borrow 200,000 from that and then pay, buy the gold. Of now, course. It's, yeah. But when I did that, how much whole life would I be able to get? I mean, what kind of protection would I be affording my family essentially in this adding a step to the process, right? Because I could have taken the equity out of my home and mm -hmm. I could have gone about the gold, but there's no safety net for my family. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Depending on one's age, you know, and their health and other things like that, you can get probably with 220,000 premiums in a single premium case, you could probably get about 400,000 rough estimate in life insurance. So about so double what you put in. That are listening, this is not telling you that he will give you that much if you show yeah. up with the money, right? This is yeah. a scenario that we're creating. It's all about all kinds of stuff. Sorry, is not going to give anybody this kind of policy. We'd have to underwrite it, obviously, yeah. right? Want to throw that disclaimer out there for both of Thank us. Thank right? you. <laughs> but the reality is, when you think about that, guys, if you've got three hundred thousand dollars in equity in your home, and you want to wind up with a hard asset because you're afraid of inflation, that's great. Now. When I put that money in that policy, sorry, I now have a life insurance policy that if I die is going to pay off the equity in my home. Yes. Right. I'm going to be ahead of that game. But when I take that money out and go over here and buy the gold, what happens to my policy? Well, your policy keeps growing as if you never touched it. How does that happen? <laughs> it happens because you never really, when you took out that 200,000, you never really subtracted from it. You borrowed from the insurance company. The insurance company said, we're going to give you a personal loan. And the only leverage they have is just your whole life policy. That's it. There's no credit check. There's no credit score involved. They don't report it to the credit bureaus. You don't have to put up any other collateral except for the policy itself. So they're going to give you a personal loan. And then you could pay that loan back whenever you want. You could pay it back you know, $500 a month, $1,000 a month. Whenever you want, you could pay it back in lump sums. And that's where you know becoming your own banker. You're literally, you're controlling the payback terms. You still have your home. 
you still have the life insurance policy with the outstanding loan, and now you have the gold. So now you've created kind of a hedge in multiple ways, right? Whether it's changes in gold prices, changes in market prices, changes in the line of credit that you have taken out. I think this would be a good scenario if somebody still had other sources of income to sure. pay down some of those loans. I think this would be a feasible way. But you're right. Yeah, you added a third layer. I was talking about just two assets. You added a third one. This is why I made a show called Thinking Like a Bank. We're thinking how to do these things because if you think about it, this is all banks do is they're just connecting people and leveraging. When you go to a bank and you borrow $100,000 from them, it's not like they have a vault and then they're going to take $100,000 out of that vault and give it to you. And now they're down 100,000. No, they're going to they're going to leverage other depositors. They're going to leverage investors. They're going to leverage other banks that loan the money. And they're going to loan that out to you at a higher interest rate and then keep a spread in between. The crazy scenario is, sorry, if you had $150,000 in gold, you could get a loan on that too and put it back in your <laughs> policy, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. this can become like a hall of mirrors, right? You can, <laughs> you can see that to yourselves. We're not suggesting or advocating that at all. And I use the scenario of an asset that is fairly illiquid that does not, you know, but we are in an inflationary market right now, right? Yeah, and a lot yes. of people are looking at that going, I want security. And this is the funny thing about loans that I appreciate in inflationary markets. If I borrow $200,000 and things are inflating, yeah. prices are going up. I get to pay back in tomorrow's inflated dollars, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So as this happens, if I'm putting that in my life insurance policy, I've got a fixed amount I owe. I've got a fixed rate that I owe it at, right? I've locked myself in, but then I can buy something that is a hedge against inflation that is likely going to grow yes. at or above the inflationary markers, right? But if I wanted to, I could go and buy a house with that right? Leverage that house and then use the cash flow on that house to repay my life insurance, right? Mm -hmm. That's the typical way that an investor would do that. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. In other words, we're never just keeping money in a bank account, not doing anything. I think that's the worst place to put money, right? Just in a bank account, not doing anything for you because as inflation is going up, the cost of things are rising and your money is in the bank. It's going down every day because your purchasing power is going down. So we want to exchange that money for assets and liquidity. Like you said, we don't want to just park it in things that are inflating or increasing in value, but we also want to be able to use capital out of that. Because like you said, when we're borrowing, we're paying with tomorrow's inflated dollars. Which reminds me, I need to make a transfer because I have some sitting in the bank that I need to put to work, right? But the whole goal with this, I mean, when we do this, we've taken our cash and we've put it into this investment vehicle that is protecting us from death or protecting our heirs, really. It's not protecting us from death. We're that's not yeah. gonna, in fact, too much insurance could ensure that somebody takes you out, right? <laughs> but it's protecting you, it's protecting your heirs, and it's providing an investment vehicle. Now, what happens with the interest that we pay on that loan? The interest you're paying on the loan goes to the insurance company since you're borrowing their money. That's one of the sources of revenue for the insurance company. But the clever part is, is that when we own this insurance policy, we are also a mutual owner of the insurance company. If it's from a mutual life insurance company, you're also a mutual owner. Now, this means that as they're collecting interest from all the other people, they're collecting premium dollars, they're investing that into private loans, the bond market, You know, the insurance companies at the end of the year is going to have profits. They distribute those profits back to the policy owners via dividends. Although dividends are not guaranteed, we only work with insurance companies who have a proven track record of paying dividends for over 100 years in a row, including you know during market downturns of the Great Depression, the 2008 crash, you know, at the beginning of COVID. So they're still paying out dividends. And that's because it's not based on market performance. It's based on the insurance company's performance. So 
to answer your original question, we're paying interest back to the insurance company. But while that is happening, our cash value is earning interest and dividends as if we didn't touch it. So it's, it's appreciating, it's growing. In other words, it grows whether you take out a loan or not. I appreciate the fact that you're working with companies that have done it for 100 years because those companies that have only paid dividends out for 99 years, they're like total schmucks, right? I mean, <laughs> they don't know nothing, right? <laughs> but, but you're right. You do need to be working with reputable companies. And so what is the tax advantage behind yeah. all of this? I mean, there's obviously a tax advantage in this and it's why the rich do it mm -hmm. because the rich are that way because they've learned how to not only use their capital capital in the best way, but they've also figured out how to pay the least taxes. So what's the tax advantage with all of this? Yeah, absolutely. The rich are really good with taxes of keeping tax in, in the families for numerous generations. So I'll start with the first one. So the first one is the growth of the cash value grows tax deferred, meaning that if this year I have $100,000 in cash value and the next year I have 105,000 in cash value, I don't pay taxes on that growth. This means that I could keep through numerous policies and loans and doing all everything that I'm doing, the growth of it won't impact my income taxes. I don't have to claim that as income taxes or capital gains for that matter, because I'm not taking anything out of it. That's one advantage. So tax deferred growth while it's inside your policy. The second is that when you pass away the life insurance amount, that goes to your family income tax-free or to your beneficiaries income tax-free. So this is how you know you could go multi-generational wealth without paying taxes, is that you pass the wealth onto the next generation without paying income taxes. You could still be estate taxes, exposed to estate taxes for high net worth individuals. I got to check the numbers. I think it's like 13.5 million. If it's above that, then you might be exposed to estate taxes. But other than that, income tax-free, that's important. The third layer is that in most situations, when you take out loans and withdrawals, even if it is above cost basis, above what you put into it, like a gain in the value, you don't pay tax on that in most situations. In every situation, the policy is not a modified endowment contract. If it is a modified endowment contract, then you could be subject to taxes on loans and withdrawals. So, and then there's even a fourth step, and this is kind of tricky. So don't quote me on this one. I'm not a CPA. Talk to your CPA, talk to your tax attorney about this. But that this could be that if you borrow from the policy and you're using it for business purposes, you could, in some situations, write off the taxes you're using for the policy. So that'd be like the fourth advantage, the fourth tax advantage. I can say that I like three of the four. The second one, I don't care for so much. I mean, yeah. the fact that you got to die for your heirs to get the money, you know, that whole part involves me in a way that I don't want to be involved, but I will be at some point. Right. And this is the thing just to surmise this in a different way or to put this out there. If I put in a hundred grand and that thing is going to make, let's say it just makes 5% a year. Okay. Yeah. And that policy has now grown over 20 years to 200 grand. Yeah. Right or it'd be more than that, I can borrow out the 200 grand and I can deploy that 200 grand. And I know I wouldn't be able to borrow at all, but yeah. we borrow a majority of it. So I can borrow out more than I originally put in. Yes. Still have that be. So now I now have access to more money than I put in without paying taxes on it. Whereas if I would have taken that money and deployed that, and let's say that I bought rental property and that rental property appreciated and I got the income off of that, I'm going to pay taxes on the income. Yes. And then when I sell the house, I'm going to pay taxes on the house and I'm going to get taxed at every turn. Yeah. But if I use that money out and I borrow that money out after an appreciated amount, I get to use that those funds without having to pay taxes on them to use them. Then when I go buy the house and I loan the money from myself to myself. Yes. And then I go and I sell the house and I pay back that loan. I can yes. charge myself a really high interest rate, couldn't I? 
Yeah, you could. Yeah, there's ways to do that. Yeah, with so the proper guy. Let's just say that I did this for two years and I made 20 grand on $100,000 and I charged myself 10% interest. That would mean that that whole $20,000 I profited would go back into my life insurance policy. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't yes. pay taxes on that, would I? Yeah, correct. So now I've now got $120,000 in my life insurance policy that is now growing faster. Yeah. And I'm able to use that like a retirement account, but unlike a retirement account, if something happens to me, my heirs get the benefit of that on top of what I paid. Because if I had $100,000 in there, I'm going to have more benefit than that. So there's going to be a win all the way around, except for me, right? I'm the one that doesn't win in that scenario, right? <laughs> yeah, you got it spot on. I can and tell you know, you've been right, doing We could go down this rabbit hole. We could come up with all kinds of scenarios. But the reality is it's such a versatile tool I'm constantly surprised because people surprise me all the time, but I'm shocked at how few people actually utilize this principle when it, it can be so incredibly beneficial to your growth. It can be so instrumental in picking up a percentage point here, a percentage point there, because everybody's looking for you know this home run that makes you 30% or 40% IRR that you're missing out on something here that's going to provide you four or 5% plus, plus the benefit of protecting your family should something happen to you in an untimely fashion. On top of that, it's tax-free, right? Yeah, absolutely. If you, you know, obviously the high returns are always good, but if you do the math on a larger spread, 20, 30 year spread, if you just had 5% compound growth without being interrupted over a 20 or 30 year period, if again, do the math on this, it'd probably come out greater than sometimes earning 10%, sometimes losing money, sometimes making 15%, sometimes losing money. You'd have a larger spread over that 20 or 30 year period of consistent compound growth over the years. Okay. So let's talk about who should start when, right? So there's the argument that is out there with people that say, well, if you're looking at a retirement account, a younger person doesn't have to put as much away to have that better benefit down the road. Is that the same with this? Yes and no. So yes, it could be because like, for example, if somebody's 30 years old and you know they're planning on retiring at age 70, technically they have 40 years of putting in money. They could just put in you know, $300 or $400 a month over the next 40 years. And that'll give them probably you know, just doing some rough math, maybe it would 5X their money over that period. You know, They would get a 500, you know, their money would multiply by five times over that course. And they would still have liquidity in the meantime. Now, now, that's not to say that you have to be 30 years old to do this. Let's say somebody is 50 and they want to retire at age 70. There's a lot you could do there. Let's even say that somebody is 65 and they want to retire at 70. There's solutions for that too. So it all comes down to the financial analysis with clients. We go through a full, thorough 60 to 90 minute financial analysis. We understand their clients. We understand our, what their goals are, their objectives. And everybody has different situations. You know, like I worked on a case with a guy who was 70 years old. He sold one of his properties. He had like $400,000 in cash. He put that all into a single premium whole life policy. So he didn't really need 20 years to make the solution happen. He made the solution happen in one year because you know, of his situation, of his financial situation. A lot of people are similar to this. Some people only put in money for seven years. That's it. They'll put in like $100,000 for seven years. And that's it. The policy is paid up. It keeps growing. It's liquid. It's accessible. And then they don't have to you know, do anything about it anymore, but it keeps growing. But they also need $100,000 every year for seven years. So different situations like that, you know, many different ways of leveraging this. And that's the thing that there is with this. And this is why people need to be talking with someone like you is because there are so many different ways and it is such a versatile tool. And again, it surprises me how few people use it because I think that they don't understand it or they misunderstand. I think is more importantly what they do. And then on top of that, you know, 
nobody wants to talk about dying. So let's yeah. not talk about, but it's funny because everybody wants to talk about car insurance, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, you don't go buy car insurance knowing you're going to get an accident. Uh, yeah. I got to get me some of that because someday I'm going to get an accident. You go buy car insurance so that you protect yourself from something that may or may not happen. I do know a few people that have never been in an accident, right? They mm-hmm. use their car insurance. and But you know, this is something that all of us know at some point in our life, we will be at a point where our life insurance will be valid, not for us, but for someone else. So why aren't we talking about this? Why aren't we engaging with this? And why aren't we educating ourselves on this? So as we conclude this, what else is there that I've missed in trying to bring this to light and, and having this really great discussion with you? What is it that I've missed that our listeners need to know about what else are benefits and solutions behind what the products are that you offer? Yeah. So we touched on a lot of taxes. We touched on the ability to borrow. Never, It's a one-page document to borrow against that. You don't have to qualify. You just need the cash value and life policy. The third is obviously the, the policy keeps growing even when you borrow. Four, the death benefit, the life insurance, we talked about that. Five, asset protection in most states, the cash in there and the life insurance in most states is protected from creditors and you know people trying to sue you. That's important too. Six, there's no really assets under management fees. So as you have these policies and as you know they're growing in value, you don't have to subtract from that to pay a fund manager or an advisory fee onto that. Whereas other investments are like that. You know, when you have, for example, a million dollars in a mutual fund or whatever the amount is in a mutual fund, there are fees associated with that and other types of investments. So with bank on yourself, there isn't. That's another advantage to clients is that I have to worry about the assets under management fees. And I think that's about it. Those are most of the benefits. Well, you know, sorry, I really appreciate you coming by and talking with my listeners about this because it is something that they really need to look at for all the reasons you mentioned, because it is so vital to Mm -hmm. not only grow your money, but protect those around you from the inevitable and something that's going to happen. So thanks again for being with us today. Sorry, I really appreciate you showing up. Thanks, Shannon. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. So guys, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to the Real Estate Rundown on Podchaser, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast to get an automatic update. Also, find us on Instagram and YouTube. Leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback and see who else you want to have on the show. And again, guys, thanks for being in the audience and listening to everything that Sari had to say. And Sari, once again, thanks for making the show great. Thank you. That's a wrap for today's episode of The Real Estate Rundown. Let these newfound strategies pave the way to start a successful career or a profound rebranding. If you loved everything you have heard, listen to more conversations at www.shannonrobnett.com. And be sure to leave a rating, share it with your friends, and subscribe. Until the next episode.